the craft does not build the pyramids. A generation has dug the foundation. Another generation builds the foundation. Third generation builds the temple. Without humanity, yeah. no, nothing is possible, obviously. Yeah. That's what it is, really. And I mean, it's, you can bring your craft to the table, but I, like I said, you, you can't create community with the people around you. What? How are you creating community outside? Seriously, what else is there in life but to create, to make yourself a better human being mm. and to be joyful, you know, in the, in the end. That's how Dipankar Mukherjee and Mina Natrajan and myself ended the first part of our conversation about the work of Pangea World Theater, located in the Minneapolis neighborhood where George Floyd met his tragic end and sparked a national reckoning with the terrible gap between rhetoric and reality around issues of race and justice in our country. In this second half, we turn to the daunting question of what's next? How can a small, community-based cultural institution that punches way above its weight maintain the power and integrity of its healing and community building amidst the chaos and uncertainty that has become a hallmark of contemporary life in America? This is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. Part 4, Looking in the Mirror. I think in the first part of our conversation, you identified what could be called the historic Rosetta Stone of theater, which is the question, what is the need? Where is this rising up from? For you, for us. And so this is a very practical and daunting question that we all face today as we realize we're in yet another chapter of at least two epidemics, the epidemic of COVID and America coming to terms with its history of race and and justice. So for Pangea, as you open the door and you look out on Lake Street, what do you see as your job in the coming year or two, given uh, where we've come? We really believe in... um... The, the power of the arts and then artists to take responsibility for the time that they live in, that, that they can be stewards and, and healers in this time. And so for me, it's very much a place of healing, of relevance, of holding a mirror up. I know that's a very cliched statement, but literally, because right now we are facing really hard things on our street. We are facing displacement. And so now these, these spaces that have been destroyed by fire that are completely empty right now, now might be owned by people who don't even live here. There's also the other epidemic of climate injustice and mm-hmm. food injustice. So we're really trying to figure out, I think in the next two years, how we can uh, hold a candle up to some of these challenges that we're facing. And perhaps it's not possible always to do it individually. It has to be done in a way that's intersectional. One of the things that has been so wonderful out of this is that we created very close relationships with our neighbors. And similarly, with all the businesses, we knew some of them, but now it's amplified. And so how can we be a part of that building movement and building momentum to heal as well as rebuild the neighborhood? If that healing and rebuilding journey bears fruit, what will be different? What will we see happening? We have to reimagine. We have to uh, redefine uh, the English vocabulary. You know, the Tower of Babel uh, is actually the Tower of Truth. 
Babel is when you don't understand other languages, it sounds like Babel. But the street or the country in which we live has multiple notes and, and, and songs. And our job is to really see how any human being can live with dignity, love, respect. Mothers and fathers can send their children on the street, regardless of the color of skin, and they know they'll come back safely. They get the best possible education and just live with dignity. All of that, that's our job. That's our job. A doctor's job is to provide medication and, and a healthy environment. And, and our job is to listen to the stories and constantly center other people. And we all have our jobs cut out. And one of the main jobs that Pangea wants to do is that May 27th was a line in the sand. We will not let it go back to what it was before May 27th. Because everybody who talks about Oh, we want to get back to normalcy. The normalcy led to what we witnessed. Mm, so yep. There's a reason why this shit went down with Brother Floyd. And, and all our accountability as humanity, not just artists, is to see what are the reasons that enable that. And how can we make sure that it never happens again in our lifetime? Mm -hmm. That's our job. And theater is a very small aspect of it. But, but connecting ourselves to the larger circle of humanity is a huge aspect of our work. Yeah. So when you uh, speak about the doctor and the theater, it's so interesting. And this is true in many cultures. But one that I'm familiar with is a Western theater rises up from Greece, a place called Epidaurus, which was a hospital. Well, we wouldn't recognize it as a hospital because it was many little temples where people would go and sleep and dream. And then the priests would harvest their dreams and then take them to the theater to be performed as an act of healing. Absolutely. So the theater and the doctor are intrinsically connected and have always been. And indigenous culture understands this completely, that these rituals, these dances, these songs are about our health and vitality. And our capacity to survive in the world, it's not entertainment. And uh, last thing I would ask, what books, music, theater, movies that you have encountered recently have been particularly meaningful to you at this time so that you could pass that on to others who are listening? I feel like one of the books that I've really been influenced recently by, and I, I, it's called it's called The Pluriverse. It's a building solidarities and movements across the world. And so it's mm. a series of essays by people from different backgrounds. And it really has been very influential, very healing for me. It's a series of really tiny essays about green economies, about eco-positivity, uh, about transformation, about Ubuntu. It, it debunks this notion of developing countries and it's influenced me so much is because I feel like in India I grew up in a pluriverse and that's been undermined mm. very recently mm. with Hindu fundamentalism that's happening over there. It's called A Pluriverse, A Post-Development Dictionary. It's a beautiful book. That book is one of a number that have either been written or edited by Arturo Escobar that explore the concept of the pluriverse. Here's a snippet from a presentation he gave sponsored by the Cooper Union School of Architecture and the Way Architecture Think Tank in October 2021. We will, of course, include links to all of this in our show notes. It is all a question of a story. We are in between stories. 
the oldest story, the account of how the world came to be and how we fit into it is no longer effective. Yet we have not yet learned the new story. The first story then is the story of terricide, collapse, colonialism and inequality. The second story has to be a story that is centered on life, that is affirming of life, that enables us to weave and reweave and repair the web of life. And that's the story based on the concept of interdependence. And that's the basic idea is that we're all enmeshed, this intricate web of interdependencies uh, that incorporates humans and non-humans and everybody and the spirits and the ancestors or many peoples. And that we have to accept that interdependence and not separation is the real foundation of life, is the real essence of life. And hence, we have to reintegrate the human with the rest of the enmeshment in which we all exist. And so this second story is the second that allows us to uh, develop a different ethics towards the earth and towards each other, an ethics of care and healing and repair of the web of life. I would uh, recommend that. And I guess some of the other books are really uh, philosophical. I feel like this time we've gone back to philosophy, to people like J. Krishnamurti. It's about deep self-awareness in this moment of reckoning, really. One of the things I love about J.K. is that he always says, you have to recognize the darkness inside of you in order for you to yes. understand. Turn on the light. Internally. So I, I love that as well. Yeah. yeah. I read uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, yeah. uh, a poet called Kabir. Buddhist philosophy really speaks to me. And actually, Deepankar has been participating and reading this book by Rabindranath Tagore. And I don't know uh, if you know him, but he was born in the uh, 1800s. He, he also won the Nobel Prize. He was knighted. He gave back his knighthood, but he fought against, against colonialism. He's an amazing poet from his culture. And so he was reading something called Religion of Man. Religion of Man. And some of the thoughts in that book about nationalism are so resonant. It's unbelievable. It's almost like the poets of the past were soothsayers of the present. <laughs> of course. And nothing new under the sun. Nothing new. Nothing. Yeah, it could be like he's giving a lecture in Northrop Auditorium last week and he passed away in the late 1800s. So what was his name? Tagore, T-A-G-O-R-E. Rabindranath Tagore is a poet, um, a writer, philosopher, thinker, brilliant. I'm trying to not become cynical. I'm trying to <laughs> yeah. remain open and vulnerable and soft. And every time I go in to go listen to poets and poetry, it, it aids that process. Yeah. The and, definition of a cynic is an idealist betrayed. Yeah. Okay. Ideal is betrayed. Amazing. Yes. And, and in some ways, every betrayal is a, a collaborative effort. We can allow ourselves to be or feel betrayed. Obviously, betrayals occur all the time. But if someone steals a piece of your soul, you have a choice as to what to do with that in your life. And actually, a betrayal can hone idealism into something that is more useful or it can turn you into your shadow. Wouldn't you agree? That's so beautiful. Yeah. It is so true. It is so true. You know, yes, in COVID, this fear of seclusion, losing friends, not being able to go home and to be with our families for over two years. There are many things that are, you know, the impact of COVID is huge. And I also think that equally deep has become the cauldron of sensitivity. And I feel that I've 
become a bit more sensitive and let things affect me a bit more recently yeah. than, than while we were, you know, working every day. You, you take it as part of your uh, everyday life. And when I think that's like the softness has increased the sensitivity, which is also makes you a vulnerable. <laughs> yes, I, absolutely. I sometimes wake up going, whoa, what? Am I depressed? Um, God, that's the truth. You know, and what does that mean? And there's a part of you that goes, oh, no, we're not going there. We, we don't want to be down. And then you actually ask the question, actually, what is it I'm trying to avoid thinking about? The other day, I watched out the window at two crows. One was being very mean to the other crow. And I knew that the other crow was wounded. And it's like a little crow metaphor translates to, oh, yeah, some days I feel like that about the world. <laughs> One of my saving graces has been sitting and talking to people like you who embody what's next. You're, you're not looking out the back window of the car. You have to reflect on the past, but you have to be going forward. And I know that's where you are, is going forward. Part five, the caveat of complexity. I've decided that we, we have to remove certain words from our vocabulary. Like when we say, oh, it's very complex. No, dealing with race is very complex. Uh, and people who have the power to solve it start with these terminologies. Or dealing with patriarchy is extremely complex. Dealing with homophobia is a complex situation. There is nothing complex about it. If there's a the desire to solve it, you solve it. Uh, it's very simple for me to respect you. It's very simple for me to see the resources that you have, the resources that I have, and engage in a conversation. What can we do so that you also have, if not equal, at least sustainable resources, which are always so complex. And uh, really, is it that complex for me to stand stand for you? Is it? For me, that, that's why the notion of self-awareness becomes so important. That, that's why I feel like if you want to solve any problem at all, you just literally have to be able to look at yourself. The barrier is often your own fear. It's often your own anxiety not to change the situation. We have to look at those things very openly and systematically and very ob objectively in order to solve the problem. I heard an interview with Ibrahim Kindi recently, yeah. and what he's saying is we can talk to the cows come home. At the end of the day, is the thing that we're trying to change, which is a, a gap in healthcare, a gap in education, a gap in in employment, has that changed? Yes. Does the is the thing that that you're proposing going to make this worse or better? And of course, we're not always going to be right. But if we're not even asking that question, then all we're doing is standing on a treadmill, smiling and saying the right things. And I, I actually had the picture of Kendi embracing a terrible person doing something that for whatever it's worth, changes the state of affairs on the ground for people in the community. Yes. However that happens. Yes. You know, that the mother of the child who is struggling to move from first grade to second grade mm. is not having a debate they want their kid to be healthy and happy and thrive yeah, it's period that it's, is it 
Yeah. And nobody in the community should have an, a debate about, yeah. am I safe? Do I have a future? That's it. Yeah. That's it. You know, why is equity, I mean, did a black man has to be, whose neck has to be on top of asphalt under a blue uniform? That's when you woke up to fucking equity. I mean, what? What is so complex? Justice would have been if you were still alive. You are doing what you are, what you should have done. You know, I'm including myself in that you. I'm not yeah. a self-righteous group saying you are wrong, you are wrong. We are all a part of oh, it. Oh, we're in it. We're all in it. You're in it. It's very simple. In education, Minneapolis stands 34th in the achievement gap. If last year you saw it was 34th, what did you do this past one year to make it 24? Absolutely. Are these statistics just for smart beginnings or very dramatic ends of your speech? Let's change it. If you're saying the same damn thing, then nothing has been done. Yes. But, but they say, no, 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 you're very idealistic. Idealism to me is the practical breath. Yes. It's like the indigenous elders, they dream. Like in the origin of Greek theater, we dream a vision of equity. Absolutely. The idea of dreaming, one of our friends in Canada was saying that in this particular society, in this community, that dreaming was very much a job in, in, yes. that, in that community for indigenous elders. So she's got this amazing project up that is all about the artists getting together and dreaming together. And another thing that we learned from uh, these artists in Canada called Primary Colors, which is worth knowing, by the way, for anybody. And the idea of witnessing, the idea of there being three or four witnesses who tell the story at the end of the day according to their own viewpoint. Yes, yes. And so at the end of every day of the Directing Institute, we end with these elders getting up. And so we had a Japanese-American elder, an indigenous elder, an African-American elder. And every day, one of them would get up and say, hey, today, this is what we did. Here's a short excerpt from a conversation between Couleur Primaire founders, France Tepernier and Chris Crichton, and the Canadian cultural research organization, Mass Culture, in which they discuss the important cultural practice of witnessing. It, it goes back to the epistemological understanding of memory. Oh boy, you're gonna go there. Well, <laughs> right? How is memory constructed? Like, yeah. What is memory? And what is it that we wanna remember and for whom and how, right? So if you come from an, uh, a culture uh, that is based in orality, uh, the responsibility of remembering takes a very different shape, right? We're on the west coast of Canada right now, where in, in some communities here, um, there's a, a function for people. There's a role that is called witnessing. They're witnesses. And it's a real thing. It's not just, oh, I was there. Huh. Um, it's, it's people that have the responsibility of remembering an event in all its details. And, and that Without writing it down. All from memory. And, and, and those people, when you accept the responsibility of being a witness, you can be called upon by that community as long as you live. And you have a responsibility of transmitting that memory to your, your, the people after you. So there's a huge like millennial tradition of, of how we handle memory. Something you were saying just sparked in me that the notion of at some point, Western theater lost touch with their Greek. And probably that was during the 17th or 18th century where people actually lost touch, lost touch with their bodies. And the theater became such a head thing, right? And so when we uh, talk about decolonizing uh, theater, we talk about how Greek theater has far more in common with Indian theater 
than it does mm. in modern Western theater. They come out of that same source because it's that conversation with the gods. Dipantar and I were in India several years ago, and we observed this person becoming occupied by the goddess. And it actually happened on the beach. There was no witnesses. We were actually sitting there. This was not theater for somebody. It just happened to him, and we saw this happening. It was mm-hmm. the most amazing sight in the whole world. It really just reminds you, so when I see a Katakali actor actually dressing up for a full six hours, putting on his mask, wearing the, all the layers of the costumes, the paint, uh, and then finally praying to the lab before getting on stage. It's that psychological space that an artist needs to get into in order to embody and honor whoever it is that they're becoming on stage. Exactly. For me, that is such a huge and beautiful part of theater. That's something we can learn from and humble ourselves to. And with that, I want to thank you both for spending this time with me. Dipankar, you evoked the image of our departed brother, Jayotis, who I miss a lot. And sitting here with you, I, I realize how much I miss you guys. As brother, sister souls occupying space together, I look very much forward to a moment in our future when we can all physically be together again. Yes. It's important. You never left. I quote you, I quote Beotis, you're in our consciousness, Bill. And my request to you under these COVID uh, times really is just be alive. Absolutely. All right. All right. Stay well. It's been wonderful to see you, Bill. I've missed you. All right. Bye-bye. And bye-bye to our listeners. And thank you so much for joining us for Chapter 2 of the Pangea World Theater Story. Please join us for our next episode, where we'll be visiting with storied Hollywood director Jeffrey Kagan, whose career has proved that, yes, the power of story on the big screen can be both entertaining and help change hearts and minds for the better. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. Our theme and soundscape are created by the brilliant Judy Munson. Our senior editor is Andre Nebe. Our FX department lives on the web at freesound.org. And our inspiration, as always, comes from the mysterious lurking presence of OOP 235. Thanks to you for tuning in, and please keep safe, stay well, and spread the good word.